Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're ready to study the word this evening. Make sure we're in fellowship, and I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can come together this evening to study your word. We thank you for your grace and your manifold blessings in our lives. Uh, This evening, we specifically pray for Chrissy Sexton as she's going through emergency surgery for kidney failure up in uh, Connecticut. And we pray for her family and the doctors and give them wisdom. And we just pray that things will uh, work out there and that you'll use that for, uh, for your glory. Father, we pray for us as we study your word that we might be able to concentrate and focus this evening on what we're studying, that we might gain a greater understanding of your work in the past, and it might strengthen our understanding of your work in the present. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Kings chapter 1. The first 11 chapters of 1 Kings focuses on... Well, it focuses on... Solomon, but for some reason, my, there we go, something on the computer was not working. Okay, focuses on the transfer of the kingship from David to Solomon and Solomon's reign. That's the first 11 chapters in Solomon, and that's the end of the United Monarchy period. The first two chapters focus on the transfer of the kingdom, David's last days and last words to Solomon his coronation in chapter 1, and his final exhortation and advice to Solomon in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After that, we see the application of that advice at the beginning of Solomon's reign and the last part of chapter 2, and we may get into some of that this evening. The background, the foundation for understanding everything here is the outworking of the Davidic covenant where God promised I'm having some trouble with this for some reason tonight. It seems like it starts and then it, there we go. Starts with the Davidic covenant, and there are three parts to the Davidic covenant, a promise of an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. And what we see in Kings is the historical outworking of that covenant in the Davidic line. That's, that's the focus. And we see in a broader scale how uh, the fortunes of Israel will ebb and flow in relation to their obedience or disobedience to God in light of the blessings and cursings of the Mosaic Covenant. And all of this ultimately fits into a broader context, tracing the line of the seed of David, which goes back to the seed of Abraham, which goes back to the seed of the woman. 
So we try to fit all of this into that broad picture of Scripture so we understand where things are going, not lose sight of that when we focus on some of these details. As we get into chapter 2 of 1 Kings, I pointed out last time that David's advice can be divided into two sections. In the first four verses, David focuses on spiritual advice to Solomon. And then in verse 5, he just slips right into advice related to administration and handling the, the uh, transition and making sure he, uh, he solidifies his power on the throne at the beginning of his reign. And it's really funny. I pointed this out last time. I went back, done more reading in the last week or so. And you read in most of these commentaries, you read in a lot of uh, literature on what's happening here. People just have a very difficult time with the harshness of what David says to Solomon. And this is, this, this is a great illustration of what happens when you adopt a false scale of values that you think have been labeled Christian. And then you take that false scale of values and you go back and you read certain passages in the Scripture and they don't seem to fit your understanding of God being a loving God and what it is to be a, a believer and you run into something like this and people try to explain and say, well, this is um, obviously David wants vengeance or another explanation is the reason he wants Abner uh, or excuse me, Joab killed is because he's still trying to cover up the sin with Bathsheba. And Joab was the only one who really knew that uh, David had told him to uh, put Uriah the Hittite up in the forefront of the battle at, and, and these kinds of things. And it, it just, they don't, the, the failure to interpret Scripture within its covenantal context, and by that I mean, as you should know by now, to, to try to understand all of these things in light of the Mosaic Covenant and then in light of later covenants. And we go back to the Mosaic Covenant and we see the establishment of capital punishment as part of the law code in Israel. And capital punishment is to be applied from a legislative viewpoint for anyone who commits any certain number of crimes. And these people are certainly guilty of those crimes, and the fact that they were not executed up to this point was really a failure on David's part. It might have been a misapplication of grace. He might have just felt intimidated by Joab. Uh, He might have um, uh, various other reasons for not having carried out capital punishment in the past. But nevertheless, that's a solid principle. Of course, we, as you know, we live in an era today when numerous evangelicals just have a difficult time even with capital punishment and trying to uh, square that with the love of God. And it seems like people are always putting the focus of love on the wrong object. They want to love the criminal and forget about loving the, the victim and forget about loving society as a whole and removing from society those who have by their actions demonstrated 
that their soul is no, wor- no longer worthy of living because they've reached a certain level of sin corruption in their soul to take the life of someone who's in the image of God that they have forfeited their right to life. And this is God's dictate going back to the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9 that whoever uh, sheds man's blood by man, his blood should also be shed. And once again, God doesn't qualify that by saying, well, you've got to make sure that the government in power has really uh, gone through all of the various processes to make sure the person really committed the crime. Uh, you don't have any of those kinds of qualifications. It's up to man to figure out how to judicially and righteously apply apply the standard. And God in his omniscience knew that that standard of capital punishment would be abused and misapplied numerous times, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times, down through the centuries, and yet he still authorized it because it was necessary and because it was right. Just because the right thing is done in the wrong way doesn't mean it shouldn't be done or that it's not right. You have to straighten out the way you do it and not change the basic principle. And it's repeated in the New Testament. When you get into uh, Romans chapter 12, which deals with the authority of the state, and it talks about the fact that the state has the power of the sword. The sword is a symbol for the power of life and death. And so whenever you see the sword used in different contexts like that, for example, the army of cherubs that are stationed around the Garden of Eden in Gen- at the end of Genesis 3 have a fiery sword. They have the power of life and death and the, and the authority to take life if anyone tries to trespass on the Garden of Eden. So you see this symbol all the way through through Scripture, and you see certain mandates in the Mosaic Law, and people today who are just don't have a real concept of moral absolutes They don't understand the nature of sin and evil or the nature of man as being totally depraved as opposed to basically good. They they have real problems when you read passages in the Mosaic Law which says that if parents have a rebellious child, they are to take that uh, child out into the public square and stone him. Another reason for capital punishment. And modern man, because, of course, we have... We're so much more advanced in these primitive cultures, and we just understand things so much better in our arrogance, thinking that we know more than God does, that we don't understand that this is a way to protect the family. It's a way to protect the nation from raising a, a generation that doesn't respect authority and that authority is at the core of the success of any organization. And once you start allowing people within that organization to freely and willingly challenge authority all the time, then it will not be long before that organization, whether it's a family, whether it's a business, whether it's a military, or whether it is a nation, it's not long before that organization is going to collapse from the inside out. And so what happens is modern man comes up with their ethical system based on a non-biblical framework. They don't properly understand the nature of man because they get their nature of man from psychology. This is what we've been studying when we talk about worldliness on Sunday morning. 
They get their concept of man from empirical studies going back to Herbert Spencer and the birth of sociology back in the mid-19th century. And if man is the product of evolution, and if uh, man, if there's no such thing as sin, then because there's no such thing as God, then there's then there's no uh, nothing to say that man is basically bad. Man is just basically good, and it's society's fault, or it's the, the teacher's fault, it's the education system's fault, it's the uh, economic system's fault, it's it's anybody's fault, but the individual's personal volition, the fact that he's He's totally depraved, and he's just basically a dirty, rotten scoundrel from the birth. So that's the biblical picture, and modern man wants to reject that. So once you start with this presupposition that man is basically good, then it affects everything you view. How, or let me rephrase that. It affects how you view every area of social endeavor in in man's life, how you view marriage, how you view parenting, how you view uh, education, how you view the, the, the penal system. Why does a person go to jail or prison after they've committed a crime? You have two options. They either go to jail or prison in order to be rehabilitated so that they can be productive system, uh, citizens, or they go to jail or prison so that they can be punished. Now, you have two options there. If you chose the first option, that the reason you go to jail or prison is to be rehabilitated, then whether you realize it or not, your basic presupposition is man is basically good, and and the purpose for the prisons is to just uh, deal with the problems that society or family has brought on him. If you think that man is basically evil, then you understand that the purpose for uh, prison and jail is punishment. It is a penal system. Of course, we've lost the concept, the nuance of punishment for penal system. That's why you send them to prison. It is supposed to be punishment. But, of course, you know, they go to club fed or they go to uh, state prison and they get to watch color TV and they get to complain about not having this and not having that, and they have access to all these comforts that many people outside the walls of prison don't have. It's no longer a place of punishment, and for many of them it's just being able to go to a trade school to learn how to be better criminals so they don't get caught quite as much as uh, they did before. So all this boils down to how you view man. And so people come to this a passage like this, and it seems like David is being vindictive. Well, what about all this doctrine he has? And obviously David has failed. David's failed in numerous areas in his life because David is a sinner. But we start with uh, two verses, th- uh, three verses from verses 2 through 4, where he is focused on doctrinal absolutes as instantiated in both the Mosaic Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. And then he takes a breath and he just goes from being uh, spiritual to carnal. Just like that, right? No, you, you, you can't. He doesn't do that. What he is saying in verse 5 is just as important as what he is saying in the first three verses because he's actually telling uh, Solomon to do something he did not do, and that is to consistently and objectively apply the laws of capital punishment in the Mosaic law 
which David did not do, and he now sees the problems that resulted from that because he has nurtured traitors and enemies within the palace, within the upper echelons of leadership in the Davidic monarchy. And so he is basically telling Solomon what you need to do is be objective and to be consistent in your application. Now, how do I know that that that's his, his framework other than the general context? Well, if you look down to uh, verse 6, when he gives the conclusion after talking about Joab, he said, Therefore, do according to your wisdom. And Solomon's wisdom, because we know from what God says about Solomon at this point in his life, is that he has a soul that has been strengthened with doctrine, and he loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength at this point. And so the wisdom that Solomon has is a wisdom that comes from the Mosaic Law, from the study of the law and the study of God's Word. And so he is a fairly mature believer understanding the divine absolutes as set forth in Scripture. And so that's exactly what David is telling him to do, is you need to objectively, wisely apply these principles from Scripture, which I didn't do. So we were looking at Joab last time, the first part of verse 5. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the army of Israel. And the two commanders of the army of Israel that he's concerned about are, first of all, Abner, who was Saul's uncle. We studied this last time. When Saul was the king of Israel, Abner was the commander-in-chief. And after Saul died, a civil war broke out between the tribes in Israel. And for the first seven years of David's reign, he is recognized as king only by the southern kingdom of Judah, and his headquarters, his capital, is down in Hebron in the southern part of Israel. And here's our slide. Hebron is located right down here just in the south along the uh, ridge line of the southern mountains of Judea just to the uh, west of the Dead Sea. And Judah is just this southern part, and the other tribes are aligned against David. They're lining up with Saul's descendants, and Abner's the one who's acting like he's going to be the big kingmaker, even though he has set up uh, Saul's son Ishbosheth to be the uh, king. He is actually pulling all of the strings. He's the He's the real manipulator behind the scenes. Finally, he realizes, as we saw last time, that Ishbosheth is not going to make a a good king. And after Ishbosheth accuses him, probably falsely, we can't be sure, the text doesn't say, but it appears that he falsely accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines, which would be an act of trying, uh, an act of trying to cl- make a claim to the throne, because in the ancient world, whenever uh, someone took as their wife one of the members of the harem of the king, then they were virtually making a claim to the throne that they had a right, uh, a right to rule. They had a right to all of the king's uh, possessions and all of his rights and responsibilities. So. Uh, Abner then switches sides, and we looked at uh, 
Second Samuel chapter 2, verses 18 down to 32, as we looked at what took place there. And uh, Abner switches sides. Now, what had happened before this in one of the battles is that Abner had killed one of, Ab- I mean, excuse me, uh, yeah, Abner had killed one of Joab's brothers. And in, so Joab is characterized by mental attitude sins of vengeance and anger and bitterness towards towards Abner. And so he wants to kill Abner. And when he returns from uh, one of his missions, he comes back and finds out that while he was gone, Abner had come in and made peace with David. And da- he and David had... Uh, decided that that they were going to be allies and that Abner was going to bring over to David all of the northern tribes and they were going, going to be able to reunite the country. And so as a result of that, David had pardoned Abner for his rebellion. Now Joab comes back and Joab is, just has uh, un, unforgiveness towards uh Abner and is not going to just can't understand why this happens and then later brutally murders him. So that's the first king or the first general that is killed. And then the second is Amasa. And we first run into Amasa the first time he's mentioned is in Second Samuel seventeen twenty five. And there we learn that during the time of the Absalom rebellion when David has taken his followers and he has fled from Jerusalem, here's a, let's put the map back up here again, uh, fled from Jerusalem across down, Jer- Jerusalem's a higher elevation. As you head to the Jordan River, you're going down to about uh, 1,200 feet below sea level, which is the, uh, el- uh, the elevation of the Dead Sea. It's the lowest spot on earth. So you go down to cross the Jordan as he's headed that way. Absalom is in hot pursuit, and Absalom is going to appoint Amasa to be the commander-in-chief of of the army in place of Joab. Now, Joab and Abner are, are cousins. Amasa, like Joab, is a son of one of David's Sisters. Amasa's mother is Abigail. She is the sister to Zariah, who is Joab's mother. So they're both nephews of David, which means that they are first cousins. So this is a, a tremendous defection and rivalry inside this, inside the family. And so Joab is being taken out of his position. Well, Amasa has aligned himself, of course, with Absalom in rebellion against David and leads the army against David. And we see the end of the Absalom revolt when this is uh, focused on in 2 Samuel chapter 19. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. We see the picture of the return of David to Jerusalem. This is after the death of Absalom and David and his army now come back into the city. And all the people gather together and are awaiting for him to come back. And as David approaches the city, we see in verse 11, 2 Samuel 19, 11, So King David sent to Zadok, or Zadok, and uh, Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, 
saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king to his very house? You're my brethren, you're bone of my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And David is offering peace. He is going to deal with them in grace. This is the uh, strength of David's soul. He understood strength. He understood forgiveness. He had gone through this whole episode where he had been a traitor to God by his adultery with Bathsheba and then his conspiracy to murder her husband Uriah. When he confessed that sin in Psalm 51, he said, God against you and you alone have I sinned. He understood what it meant to be a traitor to God, who was the ultimate king of Israel, and he understood forgiveness from God because David was guilty of two capital crimes, and technically under the Mosaic law, David should have been executed. But God commuted the sentence. Now, God can do that. When God delegates authority to man, man can also do that. But when God commuted the sentence to David, it doesn't mean that God is setting a pattern that man should always uh, commute the sentence or not in, uh, uh, institute capital punishment. So David understands what forgiveness is, and he is willing to apply that lesson to his enemies. And, and he turns to Amos in verse 13. He says to Amos, are you not but my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not the commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab. He's always had a problem with Joab. He understands the man's out of control. He understands that he operates on his own personal agenda, that he's ruled by his emotions. He's powerful. He's mean. He's cruel. And David is willing to replace him with Amasa to forgive Amasa for his treason and promote him to the role and to the position of the commander-in-chief of the army. And this, of course, when Joab finds out about it, is going to cause great jealousy on Joab's part. So we go down to look down a little further. We read of Joab's murder of Amasa. Later in the uh, later in the next chapter, for some reason I didn't make a note of that. So Joab is going to cruelly murder uh, Amasa. And this is just another example of how Joab is, is out of control. And that's in 2 Samuel 20, verses 4 through 13. The king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be, and present, be present here yourself. So Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And in verse 6, David said to Abishai now, Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him. So uh, Abishai is going to go after uh, the enemy because Amasa has delayed, and Joab takes his men, the Carathites and Pelethites, who are part of the inner circle of David's mighty men, and they go after Amasa. And when they were at a large stone in Gibeon, verse 8, Amasa came before them, 
Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hips, and he was going forward. It fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? Notice how he is deceptive. He asks about tries to approach him in peace and kindness. And as Amasa now sort of uh, set off his guard, approaches the latter part of verse 9, Joab takes Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not notice that the sword was in Joab's hand. So what had happened was as he drops the sword, he picks it up with his left hand, which is not where you would expect to find the sword. And then as Amasa comes right close to him as they're about to embrace then Joab grabbed him by the beard, and the sword was right there to his side, and he just uh, impaled him. He struck him with it in the stomach. His entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again. And notice the cruelty here. Thus he died. Then Joab and Abishai's brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa. He's been He's been gutted, and he is still he is slowly dying and bleeding out on the road. And he says, whoever favors Joab and whoever is David, follow Joab. But Amasa wallowed in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he then moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. See, one of the reasons they're restrained is because there's a respect for him. But there's no respect from the sons of Zariah, Towards Amasa. This goes to their character. And David understands that this is a major problem, but it's almost as if they have a hold over him. He just doesn't have uh, the, the courage, whatever it is, to do what needs to be done to stop Joab. And so that is why he's going to tell uh, Solomon that he needs to uh, destroy and kill Joab. Now let's go back to our passage. In 1 Kings chapter 2. He says, Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me, and what he did to the two commanders of the army of Israel, Abner and Amasa. Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, and he shed the blood of war in peacetime. He's committed murder. He's committed capital murder. He shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. This is, this is a metaphor for talking about how he just, he wallowed in his own violence. He was proud of his own violence. He wasn't, didn't, showed no remorse, no shame for what he had done in committing these acts of violence. So this goes to his character. So David says in verse 6, therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. He has committed two capital crimes. He needs to be executed. So his advice is based on the Mosaic law. It's based on an objective application of the law. It is not an act of personal vengeance. It's not he's trying to cover up anything with, that had happened with Uriah. It's none of these things. It is a, here he's fine. It's like as he's getting close to death, he sees some objectivity or with objectivity that he hasn't seen before. And we come to verse 7. In contrast to executing Joab, he says, You also need to show grace 
to Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. So keeping your place there in Second Kings, let's go back to Second. I mean, First Kings. Let's go back to Second Samuel seventeen. Second Samuel seventeen. This chapter, the last part of the chapter, records David's movement out of Jerusalem across the Jordan uh, as he flees Absalom and his rebels. In verse 24, we read, Then David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Now on the map, let's go back to our map here. David leaves Jerusalem here, heads down, crosses the Jordan, crosses over the Jordan, and then heads back to the north. And Mahanaim is the place of the two camps where Jacob stayed when he was returning from Aram of the two rivers up in the north, when he's returning from his time with Laban, where he was coming back with his uh, two wives and two concubines and all the children. So this is up here off of the Yarmouk, which is just south of the uh, area, or in, in the area still known as Gilead. So he's up in the hill country of what is today modern uh, Jordan, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. So he is, uh, Genesis 32.2 is the first reference to Mahanaim. That's where he's headed. And when he gets there, while he, he is going there, Absalom, in verse 25, we're told, Absalom makes Amasa the captain of the army instead of Joab. Skip down to verse 26. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. That's the area in the Transjordan. Now it happened in verse 27, when David had come to Mahanaim, that Shovi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah, which is Amon, the present current capital of Jordan, from Rabbah of the people of Ammon, Machir the son of Amiel from Lodavar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim. So these three individuals who are Jewish and living in the Transjordan area show their allegiance to David and they come to support him because he does, he's fled in haste and he doesn't have the supplies he needs for all those with him. And they bring beds and basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, uh, parched grain, beans, lentils, and seeds, honey and curd, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and the people who are with him. So they are extending grace to David. They are welcoming him. They are hospitable uh, to David. And so now as David is giving his final instructions to uh, Solomon before he dies, he says, not only deal in justice, with Joab, but deal in grace and kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite. He had, in fact, invited when David had returned to, uh, to to return to Jerusalem. He had invited Barzillai to come and live with him in Jerusalem, and that he would re, in, in restoring and repaying the kindness. Barzillai would not do that, but his sons did. So his sons were living. In Jerusalem, and so he is instructing Solomon to continue to deal with them in kindness and in grace. This shows his his grace orientation. And then, verse eight, we come to the situation with Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Baharim. 
and Baharim is located on the road from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River. And this is where uh, Shammai was, that as David left and was fleeing from Absalom, uh, Shammai comes out and curses him, and uh, David is eventually going to pardon him. And we see the episode here in 2 Samuel chapter 16. So we're flipping back and forth to make sure we understand who all the characters are. Now, when, look at Second uh, Samuel 16, verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul. His name was Shimei, the son of Gerah, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. So he's just reviling David. He's uttering every vile curse he can. He's, he's ridiculing David and just verbally abusing him. And then he physically abuses him. Verse 6, he threw stones at David and all the servants of David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And nobody's reacting. Nobody's running out and grabbing him. Um, also, Shemai says, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. So you just see his vengeance. Now you see, once again, the mentality of the sons of Zariah. Abishai comes along. Remember, there's Abishai and Joab are brothers. Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. The king, that's David, says, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? In other words, David is feeling pretty defeated at this point, and he thinks, Well, we're just, let him curse. It's not going to do, uh, do any harm. Maybe I deserve all of this as part of my punishment for, uh, the affair with Bathsheba, and he knows that because there is the fourfold punishment, and the Absalom rebellion is the fourth part of that that punishment. So he recognizes that this is probably God's will to have him cursed by Shimei, and so he treats with him in grace. He says in verse 11, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. This is an Old Testament example of what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, turning the other cheek. It's not being willing to take an insult. That's the problem with uh, uh, interpreting turning the other cheek. Is uh, I loved this several years ago. Dan Ingram did his uh, master's thesis on that passage and the interpretation there. And I had never worked through this, and I remember talking to Dan about it, and he said, said, do you really think there was a problem with people walking around Israel slapping each other on the cheek? Well, that's absurd. It's obviously an idiom for something, and it's an idiom for taking offense. If somebody offends you or does something that you could take offense over, don't jump at the chance to take offense and thus return evil for evil that we as believers should return good for evil. That's grace orientation. And that's exactly what David is demonstrating here, is that 
I am going to deal with Shema, even though he is cursing me, I am not going to curse him, and perhaps the Lord will repay me uh, with good eventually. So he heads out. That's the first time we see Shimei, and the next time we see him is when David's coming back into town in 2 Samuel 19, uh, verses 16 and, and, uh, and following. We've already looked at part of this passage as David is coming back in. This is when he appoints Amasa to be the commander-in-chief of his army. And then in verse 16 we read, And Shimei, the son of Gerah, a Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Now, he's a little obsequious. He's just this oily little unctuous character now. Now that David's back in power, he's going to just come crawling to him and beg for forgiveness. And I really didn't mean all that, and please don't cut off my head. And so he comes running back to David. And we read in verse, uh, middle part of verse 18, Now Shimei the son of Gera fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem. The king should take it to heart. So he's confessing his sin to David. For I, your servant, he says, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come down today of all the house of Joseph to go down to meet my Lord the King. Now here, look who we see in the next verse. Abishai, the son of Zariah. These guys are just bloodthirsty. Said, Shall not Shemai be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king swore to him that he would not execute him. So this is a great story here for teaching principles of forgiveness of one another and impersonal love out of the Old Testament. Grace orientation. Taking these, this, the whole way David is dealing with somebody who is uh, part of a conspiracy against him, someone who has turned against him, he's part of the Benjamite uh, family, he's related to Saul, he's just out to uh, destroy David. David says, no, we're not going to do anything about him. And then when he comes back, David doesn't seek vengeance and doesn't um, have anything done to him. However, that's not the last that we see of Shemai. When we come to the whole episode with Adonijah in 1 Kings chapter 1 and Adonijah's conspiracy, against David, we discover Shemai again. And Shemai is aligned with uh, Adonijah. First uh, Kings chapter 1, verse 8, Zadok the priest. Uh, excuse me, Shemai, I, I misread that. Shemai is aligned with David. But Zadok the priest, Benai the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shemai, Rhea, and the mighty men who belong to David are not with Adonijah. He doesn't align himself with Adonijah overtly because this guy is sneaky. He's going to sit in the background. He's not going to come out and risk anything. But when David is instructing uh, Solomon in verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, See, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite from Baharim, who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day when I went to Mahanaim. 
But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless. Why? Because what's going? This guy's dangerous. He he he's going to line up with a conspiracy. He's already been involved in a revolt against me. Just because I have forgiven him doesn't mean you can turn your back on him. Watch out. And so that will play out in the rest of the chapter. And David was exactly right in realizing that in his heart, uh, Shemai was a traitor. So he tells Solomon, "You're a wise man. Know what you ought to do to him." but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. It's interesting how Solomon is going to set that up. Well, with that, we end David's final words, final instruction to Solomon. And in verse 10, we see the death of David. So David rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. David is buried in Jerusalem. He's not buried with his fathers, which would be in Bethlehem. That is where he's from. So the the idiom Rested with his fathers is simply an idiom that he has, he has died and his soul is gone to be with his ancestors in heaven. The chronology is summarized in verse 11. Uh, the, the period that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years for a total of 40, 40 years. Then Solomon sat on the throne of his father David. Notice that it is designated the throne of David. It focuses our attention on the Davidic dynasty. It focuses our attention back to the Davidic covenant. And we remember that Kings gives us the human perspective on this. When we come to Chronicles, Chronicles looks at all of these events, and we'll see this more and more as we go through Kings. We'll make the comparisons with, with Chronicles. Chronicles looks on this from a divine perspective, and if you look at 1 Chronicles 29-23, where you have a parallel passage, instead of calling it the throne of David, it says Solomon is on the throne of Yahweh. So it's looking at it from the divine perspective. The throne, the ruler of Israel is a descendant of David on the human side, but he is ruling as God's representative over the people. So this brings us to the conclusion of David's life and and his burial in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know where he's buried today. There's tradition in Jerusalem, but we don't know where he was buried. But it was still known during the apostolic period. In Acts chapter 2, there is a reference to the throne of David in Jerusalem. But many things have happened since then, and the exact location has been has been lost. Now we come to the next part, beginning in verse 13, which is where we see the application of the wisdom related to ruling. And wisdom related to ruling has to do with knowing who to punish and when to punish, who to extend grace to, and how to extend grace to them. And Solomon began by extending grace to Adonijah. He's not some bloodthirsty oriental potentate who's just out to uh, kill everybody who's opposed to him. Those he, two of those he executes, Adonijah and Shemai, he set up certain conditions, and those conditions would indicate whether or not they were willing to submit themselves to his authority as the king. Violation of those conditions would show that they were still, uh, they still had their own agenda 
at work and that they were a threat to his, his power on the throne. So in verse 13 we read, Now Adonijah the son of Haggith came to Bathsheba the mother of Solomon. Now this is an interesting little scenario here. And the writer just sort of lays this out and doesn't really give us, he doesn't make any judgments on what's going on here. But you have to carefully watch how things are worded here. What we see is Bathsheba is just as canny and smart about what's going on as she can be. As the uh, queen, she is the head of the harem. Trust me, she knows all the things that are going on with the women in the harem. She knows all the scuttlebutt. She knows the gospel. Uh, some commentators think that she's basically an airhead, but you know, some people just can't can't very well read what's going on with with the scripture and with the text. She is extremely canny here, and she knows exactly what is going on when Adonijah comes to her, and when he comes and makes this request, we're going to see how she, in turn makes the request to Solomon. And when she presents Adonijah's request to Solomon, she states it without without supporting it or without criticizing it, but she says the same words the same way that Adonijah does because that communicates what's going on. So by by repeating Adonijah's request word for word to Solomon, Solomon is clued in as to exactly what's going on. He doesn't need to have somebody come in and tell him that Adonijah is still lusting for the throne. So Adonijah comes to Bathsheba. He's going to now work behind the scenes to try to uh, get his, his foot in the door, as it were, to claim the throne. So he comes to Bathsheba. She asks, are you coming peaceably? He says, yes, I have a request to make of you. In verse 15, he says, you know that the kingdom was mine. See, he is still convinced in his heart that he is the rightful king. Now, he's going to say the right things, but he still believes in his heart that he should be the king. The kingdom was mine in all Israel. Notice the hyperbole here, the exaggeration. All Israel had their expectations on me. That's not true. But he's misrepresenting that. All Israel wanted me to reign. However, the kingdom has been turned over and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. So he has to say that, but he still wants the kingdom. Yes, I have one petition for you. And she says, ask. And he says, verse 17, please speak to King Solomon, for he will not refuse you. He's thought this out. He figures out the only person who could probably get this is going to be Bathsheba, and how could Solomon refuse his mother? And he thinks this is an innocent request, since it's probably known that David did not sleep with uh, Abishag. So uh, he he makes a request to uh, Bathsheba that she ask Solomon to give Abishag the Shunammite to uh, Adonijah's his wife. So he says, okay, I will speak to you for the king. There's no indication that she is supportive of this maneuver at all. She's not in favor of this. She's not backing his play. She just says, okay, I will go and make this request to the king for you. Verse 19, Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, and the king rose up to meet her, bowed down to her, showing respect for his mother, for the queen, and he had a throne set for the king's mother, so she sat at his right hand. It shows uh, the favor that he has to Bathsheba. 
She says to him, I desire one small petition of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, Ask it, my mother, for I will not refuse you. So she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as wife. Notice it's the same phraseology as the request made by, uh, by Adonijah. And King so- and Solomon, you, see, you can hear his anger. He immediately understands what has happened. He knows that Adonijah's put his mother up to this, that he's manipulating he's the, the family, and that it shows his desire to seize the throne. Why? Because, as I pointed out with the earlier example of Abner, take, the accusation of Abner taking one of Saul's concubines, uh, or actually in that instance he was accused of raping her, whenever someone took the king's wife or concubine as his, that was a sign that he was claiming all of the, the king's uh, possessions as his. This is what happened when, when uh, uh, Absalom became king. He took one of, David's, one of David's concubines and had sex with her. He is making a claim to the throne, and that's exactly what is going on here, and Solomon understands that. And so he says to his mother, Why are you asking Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask from the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, for him and for Abiathar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah, the three conspirators. He understands the conspiracy is still going on, so he swore by the Lord, saying, verse 23, May God do so to me, and more also, if Adonijah has not spoken this word against his own life. He has broken the condition that Solomon set up back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, when it was discovered that Adonijah, I mean, that Solomon had been uh, established as the king, Adonijah went to Solomon and asked Solomon to uh, protect him. And in verse 51, or 50, we read that Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. He rose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Now, I have a picture of this. Actually, this was a reenactment of what happened when Joab fled and took hold of the altar that we had in uh, Israel last year. That's the, about the size of the altar, and you see the four horns of the altar, the four corners, and this is the idea that you would grab hold as a place of sanctuary. Now, in this instant, uh, Joab is being played by uh, Jeremy Thomas, who's a pastor of Fredericksburg Bible Church, and then you see Doug Carn there in the foreground. But that gives you an idea. This is the uh, grabbing the horns of the altar as a place of sanctuary. So that's what Adonijah had done. And Solomon made a uh, condition, set a condition for him, verse 52. If he proves himself a worthy man, not one hair of, his, of him shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So he said, this is a condition, Adonijah. I will forgive you. But if you give one sign of treason, one sign of wickedness, if you break the law, then it's a zero-tolerance policy and you're going to die. And that's exactly what he does. So we don't see Solomon just carrying out vendettas against the enemies of his father. He deals with some of the enemies in grace, other enemies who have uh, committed capital crimes. He is going to execute justly as under the law. So in verse 24, he 
announces Adonijah's penalty. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has confirmed me and set me on the throne of David, my father, and who has established a house for me, as he promised, hear the Davidic covenant terminology, Adonijah shall be put to death today, and King Solomon sent by the hand of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. So this is how he deals with treason because, as you can tell, Adonijah has violated the conditions. Now, in the next section, which we'll get to next week, he exiles uh, Abiathar. Now, this is dealing with him in grace. He could just as easily have him executed for treason, but he's dealing with those in grace where he can. But once grace has been extended so long, it's necessary sometimes to uh, bring out the punishment. That's what we'll see next time with Abiathar and Shimei, because this is, these are great examples of grace orientation, but that sometimes grace can only so, go so far, and then it's necessary uh, to execute judgment. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and see these doctrinal principles related to grace orientation and forgiveness to dealing with those who are uh, set against us, hostile to us, dealing with them in grace rather than giving them what they what they deserve. Father, give us wisdom as we learn to deal with people in grace and in love as it's based on Scripture and not based on false concepts of compassion and love that we see dominating our culture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.